You are listening to Under the Skin Election Eve special with me, Russell Brand, Lindsay German and Dr. Professor, Dr. Professor, Dr. Brad Evans. In Under the Skin, we ask what's beneath the surface of people we admire, ideas that define our time, the history that we are told. This show is sponsored by me, me, me and my rebirth tour. The next couple of shows are sold out. There's still some tickets left and left for Skegness, 15th of June, Bristol, 20th of June, Northampton, 6th of July, Grimsby, 10th of July. Go to russellbrand.com for tickets. If you like this show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes or whatever it is that uh, provides you with your content and give us a five-star review. I've got a very, very fragile ego and I need you. Over now to Under the Skin. Lindsay German is a British left-wing political activist and founding member of the British anti-war organisation Stop the War Coalition. She has twice stood as candidate for Mayor of London and is co-author of the book A People's History of London. Dr Brad Evans is a reader in political violence at the University of Bristol and director of the Histories of Violence Project. His books include Disposable Futures, The Seduction of Violence in an Age of the Spectacle and Portraits of Violence, an Illustrated History of Radical Thought. I've got both those books. They're good. Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on our show. You're welcome. This is a pertinent time. It's the general election, 8th of June in the United Kingdom, is tomorrow. Being a member of the Stop the War Coalition, or found a member of the Stop the War Coalition, I suppose that means that you're not a Conservative voter. You guessed it. You right, see. first time. Been yeah. doing this a little while now. I'm I'm a very big fan of Jeremy Corbyn, and I hope that he does very, very well tomorrow. He was one of the founder members of the Stop the War Coalition as well. When we first had our big meeting just after 9-11, which is where we were formed, he was one of the people who spoke. And I think this election is so important in terms of there is a real choice between more warmongering, more killing all of the things that we've seen over the last 16 years, or a different approach from a Labour government, hopefully, which will say we don't want more of these things. There has to be a different answer than just invading more countries, bombing more countries, creating all the disruption, which is helping to lead to an increase in terrorism around the world. You've had... So this is 17 years almost since the foundation of this movement of which you are one of the founders do you are you surprised how difficult it is to convey a message of non-violence i'm not surprised because we live in a very militarized society i think that you've got a society where uh, there's a lot of money goes into the army and the armed forces there's a lot of money goes into arms sales and military production we sell arms to countries like Saudi Arabia, so that's a a big thing. But I think, actually, if you look at it, there's a growing number of people who do see that these wars haven't worked, they haven't created the kind of peace that people wanted, and people do want that, and they can can see that if you look at um, the number of refugees, and the biggest number of refugees come from war-torn countries, they come from Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, these are the 
countries that have suffered so much, they see the instability. I mean, these are people who can't send their kids to school on a daily basis, who don't just have a normal life that we try to have in this country. Uh, their, their lives are disrupted by war. There are still civil wars continuing in loads of these countries. So I think people are becoming more aware of this. And one of the good things about the election is it has brought some of these issues out into the open. And I think, again, Jeremy Corbyn deserves a lot of credit for having done that. Yeah, it's been actually amazing to watch. Uh, I suppose there's an assumption uh, um, uh, that I'm making that based on the way that you post the answer to that question, Lindsay, that people that are, um, broadly speaking, pro-Britain having an international profile and an aggressive and militarised foreign policy would also be anti-immigration, that those are oddly part of the same narrative. Britain should be a force in global politics. Britain should be pursuing its economic goals aggressively in the Middle East, but we don't want no bloody refugees coming over here type thing. Is that what, like... Yeah, and I think that it's part of one of the big lies about wars, that they're kind of (laughs) cost-free. That, you know, it used to be, if you look at the First World War, there were terrible casualties in Britain, in France, in Germany, in all the European powers. Now, if you look at the wars... They're much, much less costly in terms of human life, in terms of countries like Britain. We use drones, we use all sorts, we use bombers that, uh, you know, mostly the pilots aren't in immediate danger from those kind of things. But of course, what people don't see very often is what it means on the ground for people in terms of death and injury, in terms of refugees, in terms of things like depleted uranium, which of course have long term effects on birth defects and all sorts of other things. And the refugees, the immigration question, suddenly that brings that home in a little way, which it did a couple of years ago when you had the big refugee crisis across Europe. This is a crisis that's already happening in Jordan, in Pakistan, in the countries neighbouring the war zones where there are millions of refugees. But it's only when it comes to Germany, to Austria, to Italy, that people start thinking, oh, hang on. And then you get this real division in terms of the people who want to welcome refugees, which is what I would want to do, and the people who say, oh, no, no, we can't have them here, without thinking maybe it's our responsibility. These people don't have a home to live in or a country to live in that's safe for them. Wars create refugees. Now, briefly, Lindsay mentioned that our violence, inverted commas, our violence is conducted by drones, it's conducted remotely, it's conducted in a a way that seems palatable, less bloodthirsty and ugly. What is this relationship between rationalism and violence? What are the different types of violence? What is the difference between the kind of violence that we appall and deplore and readily condemn on a mass public scale and the kind of violence that is more concealed and seen as rational and necessary? How how does this occur, this bifurcation? Well, I think there's two points here. The first thing I want to talk about, you, you, you mentioned this this call to make ourselves great again. Now, what this call to make ourselves great again does is it kind of white, literally whitewashes history and it whitewashes history in, in a way which kind of tries to remove a great deal of critical advancement, which we, we've kind of achieved over the last 15 and 20 years in terms of understanding the, the deep legacies of colonisation and the way in which being great again or Great Britain wasn't great, very great for the large part of the world's citizens. So, on, so there is that one historical dimension we need to deal with. Now, the second question which you're talking about then is, you know, when we're dealing with violence, we're always dealing with the question of mediation. And what we mean by that is violence which is justified or violence which is unjustified. Violence which is tolerable or violence which is intolerable. And often 
is very much the case that the violence which is deemed to be the most tolerable is the one in which incurs the greatest financial investment. So the violence of high-tech weaponry, or what we might call smart violence, which we know is not very smart. And that investment in the act of killing in itself often designates what so-called civilised forms of violence versus the more primitive uncivilised right. violence. And, but the, the, the irony is, of course, the more investment you put into these technologies, the greater the capacity to kill people on an exponential scale. So we're kind of caught in this ridiculous ethical situation where the, the more justified the violence is, the more advanced it is, even though the more advanced the technology, the more capable we are of destroying the planet. We like expensive violence. It feels like a sophisticated, articulate type of violence without blood on our hands or dirt under our fingernails. Someone presses a button in a barn in Vegas and in Syria people suffer. That's the kind of violence that we like. And it's interesting that you think that this election is to some degree about these global issues. Do you, do you think so, Lizzie? I think it's more about the global issues than certainly we've had for the last three elections. And we've now lived through four elections where Britain has been formally at war in Afghanistan and Iraq and, and so on. And most of the time, this hasn't been an issue. It's not really talked about. Any questioning of it is supposed to be a terrible kind of thing. Whereas... In reality, people are now looking at it and saying, well, this, this is an issue. And, of course, one of the things they don't tell you, when you've got this high-tech warfare, it leads to a kind of form of asymmetrical warfare. In other words, that people can't respond. You know, they don't have an air force. They don't have sophisticated weapons. They don't have all these sorts of things, which leads to some of the kind of terrorism in response that we've seen with ISIS and with, with other uh, groups, Taliban, all these other kind of things as well. We're kind of taught not to care, I think, you know, like a, like generally speaking. It's like the issue, it only becomes pertinent. The consequences of war in foreign lands only become pertinent, I think, on certainly in a, in terms of determining the outcome of elections, evidently, if the last, as you say, the last four elections we've been at war and no one gives a toss and keep electing the parties that are, you know, that are pro-war. We only sort of care about the consequences when it sort of is on our shores, as it were. I'm very curious about how a, a, a narrative can be continually managed so that we are dis disassociated from the consequences of that type of violence. Lindsay's been campaigning for 17 years. The, the electoral cycle keeps producing pro-war governments. People seem to say, why is it that we as a domestic population see it as integral, necessary to, to live with violence? Why don't we care, Brad? Well, our entire societies, first of all, emerge out of a relationship to violence, and that violence was colonisation. And violence has actually become a normalised part of our everyday fabric in terms of the way we do politics. You look at the response to 9-11 or all these major you know, events, the retort to violence is actually literally business as usual. And in that sense, you know, there is a great deal of media cultural apparatus which will go into playing into certain political narratives around the, the dominant terms will be strength, leadership, you know, the willingness to show your um, character on the global stage, which often largely reverts back actually to very clear militaristic tropes, militaristic ideas. Um, and, you know, linking it then to your question around, you know, well, what is the question of empathy? You know, um, 
the, the brilliant feminist theorist Judith Butler talks about this extensively when she talks about which lives in the world do we grieve over and which ones don't we grieve over. She calls this the power of mourning. And you can tell actually a great deal around a society's relationship to violence about the lives in which it's willing to grieve over and the ones in which just get written either as another statistic mm. or don't even get recorded. That's a bloody good point, that, Brad. And I suppose the in- it's interesting that the image of the drowned little boy in the Mediterranean is anomalous as opposed to ordinary. The fact mm. that it's like, oh no, that particular little boy drowned, like when really it's just uh, mm. that that's just a glimpse into something that's uh, you know been, been normalised. In this thing that I wrote in the article in the Huffington Post the other week, this uh, like a sorry to read out my own article, like some sort of little schoolboy show off, but. You probably have picked up that as part of my personality by now. So, like, uh, there's a bit where towards the end of uh, this article that I wrote about Corbyn and this election, and the, the uh, sort of my praise towards Jeremy Corbyn, his integrity, and the way he's conducted this election, and the fact that this is a politician who has lived by his principles for decades, and it's sort of anomalous and extraordinary, in fact, that this has happened. It's a odd. It's never happened. It's not happened for a very, very long time. So, like, a you know, towards the end of the article, I said we must have some faith in humanity, some faith in one another, some hope that we can build a better society together the, rather than burrowing downward from the gutter to whatever circle may be propping up hell. We must recognise compassion, kindness and communication as virtuous strength, not mutton-headed weakness. What kind of climate is it where compassion, kindness and openness can be easily framed as weakness because that surely with something like the stop the war coalition that's what you're continually confronting that people feel no 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 you're that soft you're wet you're the bloody woolly liberals what you know like how do you overcome that kind of framing well they, they do it in a way which is that if you look at people like michael fallon and Theresa may and all these people you know they say we're very very brave because we're gonna press the button to start a nuclear war. Now, actually, of course, they won't be pressing the button anyway. It's not going to be them. It'll be the Americans if anybody if anybody does this sort of thing. But this it's this idea that somehow that's the sane thing to do and the insane thing to do is to not press the button which starts a nuclear war. Now, anybody who knows anything about nuclear war knows that will destroy whole cities. I mean, do we want London? You know, if there was one bomb the size of the bombs in 1945, it would destroy the whole of central London from Camden down right down to Victoria. 90% of people would be dead. That is what you're talking about. Now, when it's put in those terms, people would think, oh my God, I don't want that to happen. I mean, most people would not want that to happen. But of course, it's put. it's not put in these terms. It's sanitised and there's this horrible climate now, particularly, I think, over the last 30 or so years, particularly with the whole neoliberalism, the whole idea that being sensitive, being kind, being weak just means that you're going to get taken advantage of. If you want to pay people decent welfare benefits, somebody's going to be scrounging, somebody's going to be doing something like that. So it's that whole idea now that the rich are right to be rich and that we should just let them get richer and we'll get a little bit of benefit from it. It's the whole idea that you've got to be tough and aggressive and that somehow that will make the world a better place, whereas all the evidence is it makes the world a worse place. It's that kind of constant 
that you're behaving as though you're some bully in, bully in a fight in a pub. That's what really it's like. And that's kind of been elevated to some kind of sophisticated political theory. Now, it isn't a sophisticated political theory. It's the kind of stuff that you get in the sun. It's the kind of stuff that you get in the worst of the tabloids. But you don't just get it in them now. You get it on loads of radio stations. I mean, if you look at some of the people who are now hosting radio stations they're not just kind of right-wing journalists they're people who are politicians with a right-wing agenda who are now given free reign to say whatever they want about muslims about liberals about left-wingers and you know this is the kind of world we live in and i think that one of the things about this election it's kind of leading people to think well is that a good thing can we have a different kind of way of living? Yeah, it's good that it's on the agenda because when you, the more I think about it, the more I see it as rooted in psychology as opposed to politics in a sense because you are talking about like that kind of knee-jerk, if, you if you're not prepared to nuke people, you're a coward. It's, it's sort of odd that a conversation can exist on that level. It's odd that it's kind of become like Jenga. You know, like, they, oh, you're not allowed to say that. You must say that. If you say that, it means this, that being compassionate, circumspect, willing to negotiate, willing to debate, that these things are all seen as flaws and weakness. It's like the, the territory in which political conversation takes place is itself dominated by a particular type of thinking, a particular type of rhetoric, which favours a, a particular form of power and government. Now, how do you bypass whatever gatekeepers, and I mean, I don't even mean that in terms of media tyranny, I mean that in terms of psychology. How do you reach beyond all of our instinct? Like, say something after the terror attacks in Manchester, I think all of us feel a bit more like, bloody hell, Jesus Christ, we need to do something like, you know, like this. Well, it's like we're kept in a state of perpetual fear, a state of perpetual anxiety. So these arguments are appealing. Is rationalism or like a rational argument for peace, a rational argument for discourse and negotiation, a rational argument for not nuking from Camden Town to Victoria? It, how do we make that reach people in a popular and accessible way? I think it requires a, a different conversation, and you know, there's um, there's this phrase that's put forward by the the the, the, uh, the, the Bristol-based artist Banksy. And he says, you know, those who have those who joyfully wave flags shouldn't don't deserve to have them. I kind of think the same is with nuclear weapons. Is those who will consciously say they're willing to use the bomb are the last person you should give the codes to, especially if you know the history of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the devastation that causes. Now, and I think in terms of you're right in terms of what we need to do is change the terms of debates around the very very, you know, the key terms, courage and leadership. When I think of courage and leadership, I don't think of Truman. I think of Martin Luther King. So how can we change that, that very conversation where, because these kind of terms are seductive people. People do say, well, yeah, I want somebody to show courage in politics. I want somebody to show good leadership. But good leadership doesn't necessarily mean a re retort to violence. When can good leadership actually be the, the normal approach would be to have empathy, compassion, dignity? That to me is the hallmarks of good leadership and good courage. And that what we, you, you need to then is set the terrains for a new conversation. Now, you know, it's, this is not something we have to invent from thin air. You know, there are there's a history of, you know, the work of the anti-war movement has been, you know, 
doing this for decades in terms of trying to push a new conversation. But we can even reach back much further. There was In the old Greek language, there was a concept called parousia, which basically meant a courage to truth or fearless speech, which Gandhi kind of picked up on. And Gandhi says, the courage to truth is non-violence. It's how can we have a conversation which is based on our fellow human humanity. Now, what Gandhi was also kind of saying is, in order for you to commit violence, you need to engage in a politics of lies and fabrication. And that lie and fabrication is necessary if you're going to dehumanise another. Because you ha the, the human is the star point, and then you engage in a process of dehumanization. So what we need to do is be mindful of the lies we are sold, mindful of the types of militaristic narratives which dominate our debates, but also be mindful that there is a great deal of powerful non-violent struggle which is often written out of the memory of societies, which we actually need to reclaim. Well, and another thing I'd add, I mean, I, I agree that uh, there is a different narrative, but if you think even in the way that the people in Manchester responded after that attack, which was one of the, you know, all terrorist attacks are bad, but obviously it really was very, very heartrending that children and young people who'd been out at concert were, were attacked in that kind of way. Actually, I thought the people in Manchester responded tremendously, in both in terms of the immediate, where people really helped people and brought people into their houses, where homeless people actually tended to the injured and uh, people who are quite often despised in this society because they haven't got any wealth or any money. And... And then they had this very, very big vigil where people said this isn't about religion, it's not about Muslims, it's about, you know, a small number of people who do these sorts of things. And, you know, I think we should remember that even in these, in a society where violence is all around you, and not just military violence, if you think about domestic violence, if you think about all sorts of... We, we live in quite a violent society, even in terms of things like the use of cars and the number of accidents and, and all those kind of things, that even in those societies, there is a great human capacity to behave in a cooperative way. Yes, and beyond even this capacity, isn't it curious that we instantly recognise it as heroic and aspirational, but that the response of the people of Manchester is vigils and compassion and kindness? Not for, you don't think, oh... Why are they not smashing up a mosque and like going off kicking people's heads in? That we don't celebrate. We recognise that that's not the right thing to do. Almost like we have some inherent barometer that knows somewhere deep within us, even perhaps beneath primal instincts towards vengeance and violence, we know mm, that's not going to work. We shouldn't do that. Like it's encoded in us that we have to reach beyond violence to non-violence. We have to find it. Human beings are cooperative people. That's, that is one of our basic ways of, of living. And it's, it, even with things like hostility to migrants, what they find is that, for example, when migrants come here and their children go to school and then they're threatened with deportation, there's usually a very strong campaign in that school to stop the children being deported because once these kids aren't just sort of numbers or or anonymous figures when they're real human mm. beings that go to school with your kids you treat them in a very different way and i think it's it, there is this cooperative sense there is this sense that you don't want to do terrible things to other human beings but at the same time there's a lot of forces in society who should know a lot better like a lot of the media like 
governments like all these people who actually don't act in that kind of way and that's the one of the big problems i think we face when you go deeper people are more compassionate it's like almost that we're sustained at a level of sort of fear and anxiety we go well no because we don't want there's not enough to go round. there's not enough jobs to go no bloody all you don't want no they they should respect our culture if they want to live over it like if you keep people at that sort of panicky jittery state they won't think properly but when people calm down they go oh no no my kids friends with him i don't want him being deported like like our deeper human truths are non-violent but we are kept from seeing these truths by being overstimulated and directed into a part of our psyche that is beneficial to people that are powerful and not beneficial I mean, like, if you if we access that compassionate aspect of our nature, then we're not going to be governable in the same way. That's basically what it leads to, isn't it? And and if you look as well, it's also about scarcity. When there's not enough houses that people can afford, when there's not enough hospital places, when there's not the money going to these things, people are encouraged to turn on one another. Whereas the answer is provide more money for houses. Make sure it should be a basic human right that everybody has somewhere decent to live. So this is an extraordinarily important and surprising election because all these things are suddenly on the agenda. For the first time in a long time, there's a politician that's talking about providing housing, talking about wealth redistribution, talking about publicly funding what we formerly thought of as state institutions such as travel and education, all things that have been slowly eroded and pulled apart and it seems kind of of, antiquated ideas since the sort of swashbuckling 80s, the idea that people should have homes, education. This is, in a way, what you, you know, I know that your area of expertise, Lindsay, is the Stop the War Coalition, but the fact that you've stood for mayor a couple of times suggests that you have a broader, and I'm a broader socialist view is it that for- that's right yeah and uh, and on things like when i wrote the book on london the people's oh, history yeah. of london the the thing take for example housing which is as everybody's aware is a huge issue in this city and terrible overcrowding which isn't really let alone homelessness there's both of those things going on which aren't really commented on but this is the first time since the 1890s that there hasn't been a group of people either in local government or somewhere really thinking about where is cheap housing for the poor going to come from and suddenly it's all about building these huge you know Battersea Power Station Nine Elms all the real luxury flats that are all bought as investments nobody can live in them that is going to go crash at some point and then we'll probably end up with all sorts of people who should be getting houses having to live in these luxury places because people (laughs) won't be able to afford to buy them and that would be in my view a great step forward this is an extraordinary time it's extraordinary that it's happening when i watched the um i I didn't watch all of it i try not to get too consumed by television no matter what the stated content but like i just saw bits of uh jeremy corbyn saying i don't want to live in a country populated by like you know where there's homelessness where there's hatred like you know i sort of thought oh my god it's actually just common sense it's like being stirred from a dream you know and like well, I myself have even been so attuned to glamour and certain expectations of what a politician has to look like now and sound like now. And I think, I don't know, because I'm sort of comparatively young, not compared to you two, I just mean compared to long-standing historical narratives. But it seems to me like, you know, because I'm a post-Blair person, that I sort of feel like politicians are meant to sound sort of like... There's meant everything's meant to be glazed in smarm, and when people talk like a normal bloke who you might meet somewhere, and they go, "Well, that's just not right, mate." You know, like, oh, well, you can't be a politician. You're not talking properly. So, like, like Brad, I don't know precisely where you stand politically, but like, like, but 
in a way, Jeremy Corbyn, non-violence is integral because he's talking about the violence of homelessness, the violence of economic inequality uh, and, and international violence. So this is a hugely significant election. Yeah. The one thing I found completely refreshing about Jeremy's discourse, actually, is his commitment to social justice and social justice, not in any reductive legal or what we call juridical sense, but social justice at the, the level of people's day-to-day lives and those and you know and that sense that you know people's day-to-day lives can't be divorced from the global political arena so when we're talking about you know global warfare and the way in which somebody in a local school might experience racism or bullying these things are absolutely linked together there's no separation between them so but i think what jeremy's kind of what i found quite refreshing is we know that top-down hierarchical politics continues to fail us. People don't fail us, as the examples of Manchester show. So what we need to do is kind of invert the logics where we actually start from the bottom up and say, well, OK, what does social justice really mean? And I want to bring this back, actually, to your article, Russell, because the one thing which I, you know, which I thought you highlighted really well in this was Jeremy Corbyn had the option not to respond to the Manchester bombing, right? But he did so, even though he knew the media would behave in a particular way. He took that risk because it was principled. And whether you agree with his politics or not, the one thing which he has done, not only in terms of debating justice, but for the first time, you said we've had, you know, election after election where where this country's been at war. I can't remember really seriously where, you know, we've had a, a, a real broad public debate around, let's put violence seriously on trial. I know, you know... The, what was happening with the anti-war movement was really trying to do this, but Jeremy's really pushed this to the centre ground. And we should really, you know, if anything else, we should applaud him, whatever the outcome of the election, because life goes on after this election. But for, for Jeremy to actually say, let's take this problem of violence and social justice seriously and put it at the centre of politics has to represent a profound shift in the way this country is going to move forward. Yes, it is extraordinary, I suppose, because what is it is difficult to ignore that ever, that this violence holds together the interests of the powerful. So you can't go near it as a subject because if you start saying, "Well, why do why why is this happening?" It's, it's, well, it's to protect the economic interests of organisation. And like as you said very right at the beginning, Lindsay, we're we're selling arms to half these countries. We're selling arms to countries on our own human rights abusers list. You look at these like where a lot of that perpetrators of violence are coming from, or where they're you know they're, where training camps are, and they're all uns settled territories now it's so interesting that to like as uh, brad said to me that you can't think critically about these kind of subjects or talk publicly about it. it's become a taboo to say oh what do you think is causing this mm. if you to even ask that question is to be uh, um positioned as a terrorist sympathizer and that being seen as a pacifist like i just is a negative thing how is it that something that's so avistic, so old and something that should be discarded in the, not discarded in human nature, but acknowledged as potentially problematic, particularly if it's informing bloody geopolitical movement? How is it that, how is it that we're not confronting it? How is it that, that this is still something that we sort of fight against? Because the people who run this country do rely, as you say, they do rely on a level of violence, whether it's violence in terms of war abroad or whether it's in terms of their control of society. And the, and the truth is, if there's a government that they don't like in any real serious way, they will, if necessary, use violence against it, as we've seen 
in a whole number of countries. You look in Latin America, you look in a whole number of places where the military will use violence against democracy and against what people's actual will is. So I think it's a very, mm. very big question that they, they have an interest in hanging on to this this kind of way of operating. They have an interest in having a military which is very strong and people looking up to the military. And there's a lot of things that are mixed in with this. If you look, for example, at the royal family, are very closely linked in with the military and always have been and always get the... Her Majesty! Her, Don't you her drag Majesty. her in this, okay. Lindsay. Oh, I knew it. You let a bloody socialist in the room before you know it. No, no, no. People in boiler suits. You're a, you're a big fan of Her Majesty. Oh, God you? bless her. Yeah. <laughs> but if you look at all, the, certainly all the men in her family dress up in uniform... Yeah, right. The normalisation, glamorisation, yeah, exactly. deification exactly. of and militaristic it's, thinking. It's meant as the traditional way of how we all live and how we're supposed to live. It's this kind of hierarchy that they want us to accept. It's a symbol of this yeah. is how power functions right. and this is I what power right. yeah. looks like. It's interesting, I suppose, perhaps we can sort of say that, you know, like uh, at the, you know, the end of col- colonisation is a kind of like myth. It didn't really end. It mutated that you can no longer have colonisation under a flag, but you can have it under a logo. Mm-hmm. You can go into countries uh, under, in the interest, uh, in, uh, uh, under the auspices of corporate interest. You can't say, we're doing this for Her Majesty. But even the colonisation was like preceded by the East India Tea Company or wherever they were, sort of going over there, ransacking the joint. So all these sort of badges and logos, whether they're national or corporate, under which power protects its interests and pursues its interests, have to be, I suppose, confronted, because that's what that violence is ultimately protecting, isn't it? That's what's being held together. So to have an... I suppose the reason that Jeremy Corbyn is incessantly, relentlessly pilloried in the media, populist media, media that's meant to be for the people, is because the media isn't for the people. How could it be? It's for the people that own the media. And it's not like, you know, the mail's not just run by a bunch of blokes in Watford in a shed. The sun's not owned by some (laughs) geezer in Bristol rolling a woodbine. These are billionaires playthings, more than playthings, tools of oppression. Oh, no. Oh, no. What are we going to do, Brad? (laughs) Well, I, I, yeah. <laughs> Brad will answer any. I've realised this, Lindsay, working with Brad for a little while now, that I, sometimes I've stopped listening to my own question while I'm because asking it. he just it. answers it. He'll just do yeah. something. Brad, like, even though, like, he can go pretty much wander off into any topic <laughs> and Brad will intellectualise it and come up with some academic announcement. He might bring Foucault in, Derrida. He slings <laughs> philosophers around left and right like bloody confetti. Takes a lot of pressure off of me. I mean, but the point of this podcast, I'm just going to start doing this. I'm doing a degree at SOAS in... Um, what it is is in uh, what's it called again? Re- religion in politics. Yeah. That's what I'm doing a degree in. I kind of God, I'm not going to do very well in the exams if I can't remember the name of the bloody course, right? And like when we did it, one of the things that my uh, teacher, lecturer, give us was Brad's work, uh, like Sean Orthorn. She gave us some of Brad's work, and I read it. And I thought, oh my God, it was amazing. It was like sort of things like uh, how the word terrorism got reduced to the word terror to indicate that it was more significant now. How. The, his, the function of 9-11, how 9-11 was used as a kind of moniker to ma- demarcate now we are in a different time. This is like, and how it's been narrativized and used to facilitate certain kinds of policies and certain kinds of thinking. And, you know, for, for me, the point of doing this is to so that we don't occupy the rarefied air of academia, but we talk about this as something that affects normal people's lives. Now, the Stop the War Coalition, I suppose that big, massive, great big march, what millions of people went to saying, let's not have that Iraq war. Were you involved in that? I was, yeah. I was one of the people who organised it. That was the, it was a good the, march, wasn't it? It was the biggest march in British history. Wow. You know, we 
nobody knows how big it was. Even a million, the police, million. Even the police said a million. Did they? We reckon it was closer to two million because we got various... There was an urban geographer who said it was 2.3 million. and there was I was a, there with my trousers down, climbing up something, causing trouble. Yeah, exactly. It was just absolutely everybody turning out because they thought they could make a difference to it and they could stop the war. And, I mean, that is, if you look since then, I think one reason Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party is because people were so fed up with the response of politicians to that particular campaign it wasn't just about the war because he's been involved in so many campaigns but i think it was about this is an authentic voice of anti-war peace sentiment an authentic voice of protest and not just of parliament you know he's been in parliament for 30 what 34 years but he's also done everything outside i mean you can bump into jeremy corbyn anywhere i mean i remember going down for a protest at the high court in the strand and I suddenly saw Jeremy coming out with these big Kenyan, really old Kenyan guys who just won their case against the British government over the Mau Mau and the way that the Mau Mau were treated so badly and were tortured and all sorts of terrible things happened to them back in the 50s. Jeremy's there. So there's a kind of connection, you know, and people do identify him with so many causes. Yeah, like Francesca Martinez was saying the same thing. Like that, you know, he goes he's, you know, some wet Wednesday, something. He's there, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of exactly what you want. But like, because politics has become commodified and corporatized, we don't recognise that. We don't recognise that the idea that someone that's got an allotment that makes jam, that's a normal bloke that cares about people, that's got principles that you can't distract. I mean. Like me, I love a bit of power. Oh, God, I'd go mad with, like, you know, like even give me a, a jot of the stuff and I'd go balmy. But the I like, the, he's, this is a person that lives with integrity, that lives in an ordinary house, that's been doing this thing for 34 years. And tomorrow there's an opportunity to vote for a person like that. That If this don't work out, I don't know when that's going to come round again. I don't, like, what? That's right. I think that it's a very, very important election. I mean, I've voted in elections since 1970. And I reckon this is one of the most important elections of my lifetime. Do you? Yeah, I definitely do. When was their last the good one? I mean, because like, like, this gone. Give us a bit well, of context everybody, then. everybody says 1945, which is obviously very well, important. Well, because NHS, people coming back from the war. And people got to help came people back now. from the war and not just didn't they want war, they didn't want what had gone before, which stinking was the poverty. 1930s, poverty, <laughs> unemployment, all the other Look, we've stuff. done this war for you. Yeah, Can we have a bit less exactly. stinking poverty? And we want something better. All right, you right? can have a bit less. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's what they gave them. But, you know, even in the 60s, Although Harold Wilson never gets a particularly good press, and pro rightly for some things, actually the 60s was a tremendous time for laws on all sorts of things. The what, like gender equality? Gender equality, about um, the Abortion Act, which made it easier for women, contraception, um, the end of censorship in theatres, the end of the death penalty, a whole range of really good liberal laws that came in then so that was very important as well mm. and then we you know thatcher destroyed all that and then what we're facing now is do we want more even worse than thatcher which is what this government mm. i think the tories will offer us worse than thatcher that could be I their slogan so we're going to be I worse think, than thatcher i think they will use brexit to really push down wages even further to mm. give people even less to cut they're privatizing the health service you know, that is, that is what we're facing. So it is a real big choice, I think, this election. And now, in the middle of all that, an advertisement break. 
Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Of course you don't. Finding great talent can be tough. Thankfully, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. You know, like, I can't sit around clicking away like Sammy Davis Jr. and all and nothing. I want one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Oh, oh, hopefully a candidate will find me. You fool. You just sat there. No wonder your rivals are taking over. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. Can you imagine that? 24 hours time, your problems could be solved. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Immediate! And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. Right, so if you want something to do a job, it's actually free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash skin. That's right, ZipRecruiter.com slash skin. Skin. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ziprecruiter.com slash skin. And now, back to the show. Now, curious, uh, curiously, Americans do listen to this podcast. Hello there, Americans. Now, like those of us, those that have stuck with it, while words like allotment and jam making have been freely <laughs> used. Jam. What the fuck is that, man? <laughs> and like, like it's, it's curious that in the last electoral cycle in the United States of America, there was the possibility, fleetingly, that Bernie Sanders might be the Democratic candidate, and socialism was once again on the agenda. And the neoliberal Democrat Party said, "No, no, 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 no." We're sticking with a hegemony we're sticking with a person in a suit albeit and the narrative and the sort of the liberal narrative will be it's a woman though we've got a woman in a suit like so do, do you see sort of comparisons there that this is a sort of a similar opportunity that there's sort of it's almost like a chance for people that want a different kind of politics to actually stand up and be counted and so look well like if you aren't to like in the theresa may and the way that this that deal's going don't you know like like there is a corollary between Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders like was... I think definitely and with Mélenchon in France and with groups like Podemos and Syriza mm. at least before new they, popular they what do you government. call them leftist movements they they're all leftist movements of different sorts interestingly they all very much attract young people as well as older people who are kind of who've been demoralised and cynical for many years, mm. but who kind of get back involved. But they've got lots of support among young people. A big problem from There- for Theresa May, if she does win this election, is her popularity kind of stops with sort of 50-year-olds, really, and anything much younger than that are she's very unpopular with. Now, that isn't a great future for the Tory party, whereas these movements are saying we want something different. We don't want more of this. We don't want more students getting into debt. We don't want more young people, you know, being... They can't afford a house. They've got to pay huge amounts for pensions. They have to pay for their education. People are fed up with all that stuff. But I suppose there's sort of... It must be transcendent of what we understand as politics, the kind of... the What happened around the time of... Uh, Blair and Clinton where I was thinking the other day I don't know why this came to my mind that when Mandelson said that thing you know we're really comfortable with people getting seriously rich and he was like he was the MP for Hartlepool mm. when he said that and he said we're seriously comfortable with people getting proper rich at least the MP for Hartlepool now and no disrespect to the people of Hartlepool 
but there ain't no one getting seriously bloody rich or comfortable in Hartlepool. I was there recently. So, like, in a way, when politics moved in the direction that Clinton and Blair took it in, when, when it, like, it was decided that you can't be in a position of power unless you shed certain commitments, unless you shed certain policies, unless you ultimately work for corporate interests, that... that in a way, you reap what you sow because now that kind of rhetoric, that kind of language, even like even like talking about socialism, talking about sharing, talking like you know, it seems like it's covered like covered in cobwebs and is run by cogs. Yeah, and it, I think it links more broadly. You're right. Clinton and Blair were kind of this, you know, the outcome of the same kind of you know media machine, and where politics becomes pure spectacle, it becomes pure spin. It's devoid of substance. You can't, you know, you don't know whether what they stand from one week to the next. And I think what's kind of been creeping through, certainly with Bernie Sanders, very much with Jeremy Corbyn, perhaps is a craving, as you, the, the word you use is authenticity. There's a you know a sense that we, you know whether we agree with this person or not, we know on which side of history they stand. Mm. And there's a clear side of history where we believe that whether again whether we agree with them or not, at least we know the way they will vote on a certain issue in a certain circumstance and they will stay true to that principle and you know we, we have to hold people like Blair certainly accountable not only then you know in terms of this abandonment of principles but the way in which that abandonment of principle lends itself to a certain corporatization, militarization, which leads us precisely to disastrous wars like Iraq and Afghanistan and so forth and I find it quite remarkable actually that you know for all the attempted assaults on Jeremy Corbyn the way in which he still manages to be seemingly winning through in terms of authenticity. Every single aspect about his personality has been put under the microscope. And all that seems to be left now is a familiar retreat into various, you know, post-colonial, old Cold War security narratives where on the one hand he's a pacifist and the other hand he's a terrorist sympathiser. It's almost like they presented him as this Janus Freist kind of schizophrenic who doesn't know which way he stands on violence. Whereas actually, if you look at his record, it's very clear where he stands on violence. He was one of the first people to say that you needed a political solution to the Irish Troubles, Mm. which is actually leadership. And he's also one of the people who's constantly said historically no to nuclear warfare. So there is certainly something in there that's, you know, that we need to kind of hold on to, actually. And I know I was actually citing your article then. <laughs> I did a face at Gareth's go, I'm cleverer than Brad now because I've been doing a podcast. Now, listen, you lot, you, uh, Lindsay, like, I'm really pretty fascinated that you've been in, like, in the game a long while because, like, uh, you, like, you, like, what I feel like, and this is a, a question I've had for a while, and this is, I'm, I'm asking you this from a sort of a pool of ignorance that I've, you know, like, I don't know, just was slopped out into and haven't quite waded out of. Do you think that some of the old language around socialism feels a bit, I don't know, like it's off-putting to people? Like that there has to be some sort of rewording, repositioning that you have to accept that we live in times that are pretty, like, like a sort of market-led. I don't mean that you have to abandon the principles, but the way these things are presented... Seems a bit creaky somehow. Well, I think that obviously, if you look at what's happened to the ideas of socialism in terms of the collapse of the Soviet Union and people identified that with socialism, all that other kind of stuff, obviously that led to people thinking, oh, socialism is a bad idea. I think what's happening now, you have to be able to explain socialism in terms of what it means to people's real lives. Does that mean emotion or does that mean like less time at work and a bit more? Well, I think both. I think that people are facing very, very miserable lives in this country. I don't just mean the people really, the poorest people. You know, obviously people who are homeless or people who are living on benefits are suffering very, very much. But even people who've got jobs, who aren't the poorest, who've got a car, who've got a house, all those sorts of things, they're working longer hours, 
they're worried about their kids, they're worried about their parents who are going into social care with all the terrible things that are going on with that at the moment. There's a whole, I think, an intergenerational thing. I mean, I don't buy all this stuff about there's this conflict between generations because anybody, you don't have to be left-wing to worry about what's going to happen to your kids. I hate other generations. What about mum? Yeah, exactly. exactly. (laughs) How many people really don't care what happens to their mum? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. Or what happens to your grandchildren? Everybody cares about those things. Yeah, it's made up. Plus, there isn't another generation because people are being born all all the time. Yeah, it's exactly. It's not divided up exactly. so, It's a so bogus it's system of taxonomy. So I think I learned really, that off bread. Taxonomy, okay. But I think really what's happening is that people are saying, okay, this is a, this should be straightforward, that everybody has a house, everybody has a job, that we're yeah. not exploited all the time. But people don't think that's socialism. They don't identify mm. the ideology, if you like. Now, it seems to me, as a socialist, and not everybody, obviously, most people aren't socialists or not don't think of themselves as socialists. The key thing is, can you say to people, you're only going to achieve these things with a much wider transformation of society than we've got at the moment? I don't want to, like, you know what I realised the other day, and this is where I think it gets beyond sort of socialism and labour, and it's again, I think Brad showed me this article by this Native American, he called himself American Indian, protester, activist fella. He goes, he goes check this, he goes, for us, Marxism, capitalism, just different sides of the same coin. We don't even agree with the industrialisation of our society and our culture. You lot look at like a mountain and want to smash it up and make it into gravel. You, you disguise it behind words like progress, that everything's got to be developed, industrialised, like turned into progress products right and I sort of think that there's a lot of people that I encounter that can't fit into this world they can't basically they can't make a go of it they can't get a good job like like I'm talking a lot about people with mental health and addiction issues and I sort of think and I feel that it's because this paradigm this template this type of society that's based around work isn't right for them that we could have a culture where thousands of people just millions of people don't have to work, aren't expected to work, that technology is used to create leisure, that wealth is, is used to create leisure and redistribution. Now, these are ideas that are tangentially connected to socialism, but for me, they are spiritual ideas, ideas that suggest a different type of society that's not built solely around manufacture, production and industry, but in fact, the experience of being a human don't have to work so much time. Don't have to care so much about what you're consuming. But why do we all have to work so much? You see, I don't you bloody at, know. Well, if you look at why we do, it's because people make profits out of our work. Now, the truth is, a lot of the really lousy jobs and maybe some of the nice jobs that people do could be automated. That I, When I was at school, they used to say to us, back in the 60s, they used to say... By the year 2000, you won't know what to do with your leisure time, right? Now, actually, that should have been how society developed, that all of us maybe worked a day a week and the rest of the time... You had all sorts of different leisure activities. That's but a that pie in the sky, doesn't it? But it's actually but possible. It's, it's, this it's is just one idea possible. of society. It's absolutely like, even possible. Even dear old Marx, who I believe was involved in socialism, they mentioned he at university. Was. He had a go, yeah. didn't he? Like, like, like sort of, like, he talks about the alienation that mass production produced, like, produces, that it turns us into cogs in a machine. And I love that thing that Gandhi said, that if you, ha- you, you, ha- you need to have production by the masses, not mass production, that we need to have. Like, you can see somehow as if the unconscious of a people is trying 
trying to return to craft and folk movement. You see it in aesthetics. You see it in our yearning for individualised, bespoke little coffee shops. You see it in folk art, that people don't want mass production anymore. People don't want a uniform, homogenised society. But it's difficult to express it because the dominant cultural idea is, as you say, turn people into profit. How do we make money from these people? And like, it's to the, to, to, it gets to the point, Lindsay, when you say something like people could work a couple of days a week, it's like you're saying let's just sit around and do acid. You know, like, you know, it's well, like, it sounds Maybe like that's mad. what some people would do, but a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people would actually do things like spend. Have you done time. acid? No, I haven't. It's good. <laughs> so I was told. So I was told back in the sixties. Not good for me. But uh, but no, I think that if you actually look at um, what happens with people, what would you do if you only had to work two days a week? Mm. You spend time with the kids or people you yeah. loved. You might develop all the things that you never did when you were younger. You might become good at painting, or you might do all sorts of anything. You might do your allotment. Create and you be a human. You can do anything that you want to do. That would be how it works. And incidentally, you would then care for people who did need, who did have mental health problems, who did have addiction problems. It would be Why, why, why would there be that corollary? Why do you think if people have more leisure because, time? Because then, if you've got a wealthy enough society that's producing a lot of things through automation, then you've actually got uh, the surplus wealth doesn't go to the Barclay Brothers and Rupert Murdoch and all these people, it goes to actually putting real resources into helping people who do need help, whether it's physical illness, whether it's mental illness, or just people that feel that they need help in all sorts of ways, help with looking after their children. I mean, why do we privatise childcare? Why is it that each individual family has total responsibility for their children? Why isn't it that we can have a society where a whole... The whole area cares for children. Why would you vote against that? Brad, you've been writing stuff down furiously. Don't pretend you haven't. What was you going to say? That's really beautiful, that last bit. I learned loads just then from listening. Yeah. Thanks. No, I think, the, you know, one of the best ways to understand, actually, the change in nature of political orders is actually through the different conceptions of time. And there was actually a wonderful book written this, on this by but the um, French thinker called Paul Virilio called Speed and Politics. And he said, what defines the modern period is the speeding up of everything. Now, what he argues is the more things are sped up, the less time you have, not just simply for idle leisure, even though that's great, but actually it leads to less political, philosophical and cultural enrichment. If you think about in terms of, you know, the, if you talk about political enrichment, the, you know, the, the ability to critique power, well, you need time to reflect. Mm. You know, you need a great deal of time on your hands to read Marx's Das Kapital, right? You, you know, if you work in four jobs in precarious environments, when are you going to read this stuff? Or if you want to make a great literary <laughs> contribution to the world, you know, where's the time to read Dostoevsky, right? You, you, yeah. So you... So you you need you know time is not only a luxury time can also be an oppression and understanding that then that you know the question of time is very much bound up to questions of oppression and domination. This is brilliant. Like see that thing you say about violence all the time. It's like our consciousness is being violated. You, there's no time to reflect. There is no time to interface with reality, actual reality. Well, that's what Marx said about alienation. That it does actually make people less human. That's one of the points he makes. He says that because work work is natural to human beings, he believed, right, that people have always worked and they've done it in a kind of organic way. But capitalism destroys that organic way of doing it and it's taken away from the craft work and all the things that you're talking about. Now, obviously, having manufacturing 
creates lots of advantages. It raises people's living standards generally, all that kind of thing. But that he believed there would be a time when you would move beyond that and then there were, you could use manufactured goods for things that they needed to be used for, but that actually the wealth of society would go to improving society. And that is the only way we can go forward, really. So far from Marxism being a sort of a dry, sort of banal, lacking creativity, sort of a humdrum philosophy, it could be the key that unlocks new realms of human creativity and compassion, many of these ideas. Marx, if you actually look at Marx's life and his attitudes to things, he was a fantastically interesting guy. He Wouldn't he be a bit of a saucy bugger with a housekeeper? There was that. There was that, which obviously, you know, you have to read between the lines in the letters. To Sorry, get throw that, that book away. That's capital. You shouldn't have had it off of your housekeeper. But, oh, no, but there's some good stuff. Sorry, too late. But he had three daughters, all of whom were exceptionally political, bright, intelligent women, all, the youngest who played a very big role in politics in this country in the 1880s and 1890s, yeah. was friends with George Bernard Shaw and all sorts of people and did acting. You know, he had a very, very broad view of society. He didn't have a narrow view. He wrote about prostitution in France. He wrote about all sorts of things. So this idea of Marx, you know, there's this grumpy old git with the, you know, with the carbuncle sitting in the British Museum writing capital. It was what he did part of the time. And apparently he did get grumpier as he got older, particularly as he got more ill. But actually he was somebody, they loved drinking champagne, which they could never afford, so Engels had to pay for all that. He'd send money down. He was down. a champagne socialist. He was a champagne socialist. Even Marx's one. there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Don't wrong a bit of champagne. Yeah. Right, I see what they've done. They've tried to make sharing and kindness all sound all austere and crap. Like, oh, no, you can't. Well, if you want to share, you'll have to sit in a grey box That's and do right, nothing. Yeah. And wear a uniform. I'm sick of this. Right, so there is actually an election tomorrow. You actually could do something, you could vote. Now, we told you ages ago to register. It was a trick. We only told you that so you could register to vote Labour. Now, you better go and vote Labour. I pretended that it was just you could vote for anyone. I didn't mean that. Deliberately go and vote for Labour. Right now, stop listening to this podcast. It's nearly over now. Go down to that polling booth, put an X in a box. Don't worry about what I told you last time. Last time was different. Things are always changing. You must have noticed. Look out the window. It's different, isn't it? Right, get on with it. Do as you're told. Stop arguing. What do you mean you want a three-thought? Brad, have you got anything to add before we start to wrap up this brilliant episode of Under the Skin? Yeah, just one point about, you know... You always ask. Yeah. The, the resources in which we draw upon, and I think your question about, you know, the, about socialism or Marxism, these things don't exist in a time capsule. And, and it's right, I think, you know, the history of certain aspects of socialism or Marxism, we're actually very negative to having developing a more spiritual understanding of the world and a more spiritual understanding of politics. Because yeah, something was clearly so, going on a bit then, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, in that time. That mm. must be to do with industrialisation, because yeah. the Nazis kicked off and went mm -hmm. all balmy. Stalin was a nutter. Mao went well off mm -hmm. key. So there was a, perhaps there were different factors other than just the political ideology of socialism that mm. led to... What, you mean in the 1930s? Yeah, yeah well, Everyone was at it. But in that sense, I think, you know, with all these great books and these resources that we draw upon to make sense of the world, revisit them and read them in a way in which allows you to make sense of the world today and right. your life. And don't try to create a dogmatic reading or a universal reading. You know, there's a wonderful line by Tarkovsky when he says, you know, a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books. Oh, and I think there's something really meaningful in that. I think that's a, there's a religious idea there where dear old Jesus, God love him, and he certainly did, would talk to a thousand people and each of the thousand people would take from Christ's message that which they needed to hear. And 
for me, like I suppose, what like, the reason that I am interested in spirituality because for me, spirituality is about feeling, about what people feel. And when you talk about like a sort of the the politics that we're living under now, is the feeling that life has to be a certain way, that it's impossible to change, that you can't have more leisure time, that you can't have more compassion, that you can't open your hearts to people. That like you know that when we talk about stuff like oh you know people could work two three days a week, you dismiss it. People have become accustomed to their misery addicted to their pain is a kind of mass sadomasochism that we elect people that are cruel to us that hate us because we've been somehow trained to hate ourselves well this is a chance to start loving yourself loving society being compassionate to yourself and to one another genuinely in a different forum it doesn't have to be hippy dippy it can be technical industrialized the transition to a different type of government a different type of politics and for once it's actually accessible through the democratic process. Do you want to add something, Lindsay? Because you've obviously, you totally know the score. It's so lovely to have you here. Well, I, I just feel that there's times in history where people's ideas begin to change. I think we're going through one of those now. I think whatever the result of the election tomorrow, and I very, very much hope it will be a Labour government, I think there's millions of people now thinking this is not right. We cannot go on like this. Big things have to change if our society is going to go forward. So to me, it's a period of hope. There's lots and lots of things. I mean, if Jeremy Corbyn becomes prime minister, I don't think we should doubt for a minute there'll be lots of vested interests against him and we'll have to mobilise we'll have to mobilise out on the streets it'll be terrible you know it will be there will be absolute you know the pound will fall all this kind of thing but it seems to me that this is this is a period of hope like people saw in the 60s like they saw in 1945 and we it won't be the end of the process it's going to be the beginning of a big process do you believe in God no what do you believe is uh, the nature of consciousness and the, is there an interconnectivity between people? Like, What is love? Well, I think if you're looking at what love is, I mean, obviously there's individual love that people feel for them. You yeah, know, like affection, close troubadour to them love, and like for... I, I think that most human beings have a feeling that they have to work cooperatively with people and that you have to develop a philosophy. Most people don't think they've got a philosophy, but most people do have a philosophy of some sort or another. You have to develop a philosophy which really is about saying we cannot survive just as individuals. It isn't about me. It isn't about any of us. It's about what we do as a society, and that's why it matters what happens to your gran in the old people's home. It's why it matters what happens to the kids who don't get free school dinners at primary school. That's what, you know, they, these things affect people for the whole of their lives. And we have to see society as something that's broader mm. than just us. It, we're all individuals and we've all got an individual part to play in society. But if we just see it as about individuals, then we lose. If you look at every big change in this country from trade union rights, the right to vote, the right of women to vote, all of this has come from outside Parliament. And as far as I'm concerned, it's very, very important to have a Labour government. But it's also important that we see that our role as activists, our role as people who are going to say we will stand up and fight for what we believe in. That is one of the most important things we can do. So that, to me, I will be on the streets the week after or three weeks after or whenever it is, demonstrating and protesting. Oh, you'll find something else to moan about, will you? Exactly. We'll give you a bloody exactly. Labour government. Yeah, that's no, right. it's not good enough. That's What's right. something else now? Never satisfied. <laughs> Brad, have you got have you got anything to add, mate? No, um, I think it's I think Lindsay captured it. That's wonderful. really beautiful contribution. I've really really enjoyed thank this. You. Thank you so much. I well, feel like thanks it's, for inviting me. It's really uh, informative. You come back, William, and tell us some other stuff. Yeah.
All right, thanks. You've been listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand and Lindsay German and Dr. Professor, Dr. Professor Brad Evans. Thank you very much. You know what you've got to do. Try your level best in. And like either way, it seems like society is made up of a series of individuals, so you can't just fling an X in a box and clear off. You're going to have to continually contribute and create the society that you want to live in, both as an individual and as a community, because neither of those things exist other than with your belief in them and your interaction with them. Your own consciousness is formatting reality as you think it, as you imagine it. So the realms that you imagine, the realms that you participate in, will be created around you, sort of like a computer game, but one that you have to actually live in. You've been listening to Under the Skin with Russell Brand. <sighs> well, I'm going to go and take drugs and sit in the park. <laughs> <laughs> I've not had any drugs for ages. <laughs> the show is over. It's sponsored by my tour. If you want tickets to my tour, go to russellbrand.com. Skeggy. There's tickets there, 15th of June. Bristol, 20th of June. Tickets there. Northampton, 6th of June. And Grimo, 10th of July. That's Grimsby. You know that, don't you? If you like the show, subscribe to it and review it. This isn't Desert Island Disc. If you've not worked that out now, what the hell are you thinking?